Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow and I'm joined as always by my best friend Nick Dostal. How you doing there, maestro? Woo, excited to be here. Damn right, absolutely, because today we're going to talk about our favorite movie scores. And, well, I think we both thought today's episode was going to be a softball, that we were going to be able to come up with these choices easily. But this episode, along with our next episode about our favorite movie songs and soundtracks, these are the hardest ones to research yet and the most time consuming. Yeah, this this was a lot deeper than I thought it was going to be. We have such a connection to music and such a connection to movies. So it seemed like it would be a natural, like you said, softball kind of throw up in the air like, oh, we got this. Then as I was finding, I was like, this is a lot more personal and emotional and sincere than I thought it was going to be. And um, which is awesome. But here we are. Yeah, you just touched on it, because when you're talking about any kind of musical taste, it is something that is so uniquely subjective. Music hits all of us differently. Hearing a song for the first time is usually a singular experience, and we're all going to connect or not connect with a song based on any number of personal factors. And when you have to combine your music taste with your movie taste, it gets even that much more specific. Yeah. This is a long way of saying that these lists of our favorite movie scores that you're going to hear are so specific to who Nick and I are as people and who we are as film viewers. Our lists may not reflect your lists at all. And in fact, if we were making these lists a month from now, they probably wouldn't be the same as they are right now. That's very true, actually. Yeah, it changes. So my final thought before we dive in Nick and I are men of a certain age in our early 30s, or in my case, I guess, mid-30s now. Jesus. <laughs> for Nick and I, the movies we saw for the first time between the ages of 8 and 13, I don't want to speak for you, but I mean, for me at least, those are the movies that have seriously impacted my film taste as an adult. And I've made a conscious effort to branch out and include some older stuff, some foreign stuff, but basically, the only criteria for our lists was that we had to love these scores, and we had to be able to speak about why we love them. Well, music in movies to me is really, really special. I love it. I find that music can make a bad movie good and a good movie great. And so when you start to throw music into it, especially between scores, because the scores are tone, it's mood, it's beauty... It's sadness. It really breaks down the levels of emotion to sounds that we can really emotionally digest easier. We don't have a connection to them as much as we do songs that we know. It's a feeling. I'm always very, very in tune with that. And it's something that I love about going to the movies is the music that I'm about to hear. I'd like to bring up one example of how score is really effective from The Social Network in 2010 by um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And in the very beginning of the movie, when we're introduced, when the music is first heard, there are these three notes that come up. And this will be the theme of the movie, I guess you would say. And in the very beginning, you can hear them so well. They're, they're very resonant. And then as the movie goes on and the friendship starts deteriorating between the two main characters, when their innocence starts leaving them, those three notes come back, but they're different now. They're farther away. They're muffled. And then by the time we get to the end, 
you can barely even hear them in the distance. And that is a very, very subtle, specific storytelling component that's being manipulated by the composers. And it makes you feel something without really knowing it. And I think that is such a cool example of how score doesn't always have to be these orchestral, beautiful pieces, which they are. And that's a big part of my taste are those type of scores. But to think about how they are infused into the film to tell the story. You talk about that that movie has that theme, those three musical notes, that cue. But then you also have pieces like in the rowing scene, which absolutely wants you to be listening to the score and paying attention to it. And that's how you win an Oscar for best score, because they're able to do both. They're saying, oh, cool, Fincher's giving me my three minutes to shine and do the loudest shit possible. And then I also can sneak in all my other stuff. So that's a perfect example to kick us off. And okay, so let's dive in. We're going to split this episode into a few simple sections, the first being five of our favorite film scores. These are not ranked and we aren't necessarily saying these are our five favorites ever, but they are complete musical scores that we love on their own and as they play with the movie. So I'll go first because this probably isn't going to be a surprise. When I hear the words musical score, my brain is hardwired to immediately see a taxi cab slowly driving through a cloud of steam as Bernard Herrmann's drums and saxophone introduces to Travis Bickle. Taxi Driver, 1976, music by Bernard Herrmann. This is my favorite movie score. It's why I'm mentioning it up top. It's been a constant pulse in my head since the first time I heard it. Fun little fact, Herrmann rather famously did not want to do the score for this movie because he thought the material was too gritty. But Scorsese wore him down and Herrmann ultimately delivered one of his most iconic scores. And the tragic irony is that this was his final complete score. He died before... The movie was even released, and he's one of our most famous composers, Citizen Kane, Vertigo, Psycho, all of which I love, but Taxi Driver's the top for me. And Taxi Driver, outside of having that music, there's so much mood. Oh, yeah. You can feel it. Something's wrong. Something's ugly. It's not... So much danger in it. Yeah, danger. That's the word, danger. So this is my favorite score of all time, from start to finish. Uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan by James Horner. Man, this score is so awesome. It's big. It's orchestral. How do you walk into this franchise and try to make something that is resonant to the past, but also something that's completely appropriate for the story of the movie? And there's a theme to Khan, who I think is one of the best movie villains ever, I think this um, Khan theme is one of the best villain scores that you could ever listen to. Love this score. So I know that you love James Horner so much. So when you told me, you know, this is going to be at the top of my list. I have not seen Wrath of Khan. I'm not a Trekkie. It's, you know, nothing against it. So I hadn't seen this and I went, all right. Yeah, even if you don't go in for Star Trek movies, like this score is beautiful. You can put this thing on. I mean, it just plays. It's great. It's a great choice. And that's a good thing, too. Like, I think with all these scores that we're talking about, these are ones that you could put on from start to finish. And each song offers something just like an album would. Speaking of which, I'm going to jump back two years from my first pick. And is there a sweeter 
more seductive sound than Jerry Goldsmith's trumpet from Chinatown. I mean, when that thing just lays in over the credits, it is, ah, talk, it just purrs. We don't have too many old Hollywood movies on our lists, but this one blends those big orchestral sounds and those little subtle notes that we've been talking about together really, really well. Another fun fact, this was not the original score for Chinatown. Robert Evans, infamous producer Robert Evans, disliked Philip Lombardo's original music, and Goldsmith was brought on to record the entirety of the Chinatown score in 10 days. Wow. That is insane. And that's proof that when you're put under immense pressure, great things can happen as a result, but certainly not always. Chinatown, Jerry Goldsmith. It's got to be one of the coolest scores. Well, flowing right into Jerry Goldsmith, one of my favorite scores is Rudy from 1993. I love this movie. I love Rudy. This movie, I don't think people talk about it enough. I don't think people know about it enough. It's a Thanksgiving tradition. Wait a minute. Do you... I feel like everyone our age knows this movie, but you're talking about like younger younger generations don't know it? Damn, you might be right. Yeah, most people that I mention this movie to are like, oh, I don't know what that is. This is definitely like a Thanksgiving mainstay. Like, this is... That's a shame. This one needs to... You gotta see Rudy. Come on. You gotta... <laughs> Oh, the the ultimate underdog story. And Sean Astin, man, I love that guy. I think he's great. And this score is just, it's beautiful because Rudy's a small guy. And and that's the whole entire kind of point of the movie is that he's too small to be playing football. It, it's an underdog story. And the, the music to it is courageous. It's hopeful. It's trying. Yeah, can't say enough good things about this movie and the score. And from beginning to end, the score is beautiful. That final game track is one of the great sports movie scores. It just doesn't leave your head. I've, in the past, I've gotten that thing in my head and not known where it was from. And then I've just, I just like caught Rudy on TNT and heard it when, thank God, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> my brain can rest. I'm going to switch gears to something a little more haunting and... There's a very slow build, a menacing rumble in the background. The sound enhances to a screaming Hans Zimmer organ right as a crocodile submerges itself into murky green water. What in the ever-loving hell is the thin red line getting us into? When I think of war movie scores, I hear bombastic, familiar, patriotic horns, America fuck yeah, Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line is different in every respect. The film, frankly better than any war film I've seen, captures the true hell of war and shows what war does to people while they're actually living it. And Zimmer's music, this is my favorite Zimmer score, really helps sell that. The choral, Atoll, and Journey to the Line are standout tracks. Great music. Great music, great composer, probably today's most iconic. And it's funny that you're talking about that's your favorite Zimmer score because I will switch to my favorite Zimmer score. And uh, I'm sure at this point, everyone's sick of me talking about this movie, but I'm just going to give it another shout. Inception. I, there's no movie's music that I think affects me harder and more impactful than Inception. It's so big, it's gotten made fun of. It's become a thing where it's almost a parody. This is the most influential score since it has been made in terms of how much it has been parodied, mimicked, stolen from, 
hugely influential on contemporary cinema. It really is. But when you see that in theaters and those drums hit, if that does not blow your fucking socks off, man, I don't know what to say because (laughs) that is what it should do. That's what it does to me. And I'll also say about this and we'll move on. Time is one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard. That song will always, always get me. It's great. For my next pick, rockers scoring movies can be a great thing. You talked about it up front. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross won an Oscar for scoring The Social Network in 2010. That's amazing. Bringing a rocker in can give a whole new vibe to a movie simply because simply because that musician may not be as precious with some of the traditions of scoring a movie as a veteran composer would. One, if not the best example I can think of this, is Johnny Greenwood's score from There Will Be Blood. I know my picks are fairly obvious, but I can't help it. This is a majestic and soothing and troubling package of songs that I can listen to anytime, and it suits the movie perfectly. I don't know how or why PTA got the idea to have Radiohead's guitarist score the film. Greenwood had never scored a scripted movie before, but their marriage has been bliss because Greenwood is synonymous with PTA's films now, scoring There Will Be Blood, The Master, Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread was really close to making the cut here, by the way. Greenwood also did the score for You Were Never Really Here, which we both love. He's one of the great composers in movies right now. I would see any movie that he was going to do the music to without knowing anything else about it. That's a really cool statement to make about knowing if someone composed the movie. Oh, I'm going to go see that just because so-and-so was the composer. I mean, Tom York did it for Suspiria, the new Suspiria. And I, when I heard that, I went, I don't care what this, I don't care that it's very long. I don't care that it's supposedly all dark. It doesn't matter. I'm buying a ticket, going to the biggest, loudest theater I can to hear Tom York's original music for this movie. And that, <laughs> it works so well in that movie, too. It's so good. It was great. It was great. I, was, I want to tell you one thing about the, the There Will Be Blood pick. There's so many visuals, but when someone says to me in any type of conversation they bring up There Will Be Blood, I have an image that comes in my mind before any of the other iconic images of that movie, and it has nothing to do with the movie. It has to do with the sound, the score. It's in the beginning when he's coming out from the... Um, yeah, his like gold mine, silver mine, yeah. Yep, and the, the music reaches that really, really disturbing high pitch sustain. Oh, yeah. And the camera pans up to the mountaintop. You know something bad is happening, and it is very unsettling, and I still... That's what I first think of when I, when I think of that movie. Do you mean the scene like after he's broken his foot and he yeah. starts to crawl back? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's that that's almost my favorite scene of the movie because I mean we've I think we've talked about it even on this podcast. Tarantino actually summed this up better. Tarantino said, "That's a whole fucking movie. Like how does yeah. a guy with a broken leg or foot get to wherever the hell he's just gotten to start trading this silver or gold? Like that's an entire movie because yeah, the camera tilts up, the music's blaring away and you're like, uh this guy's just going to literally not even crawl. He's like scooting with one leg to some town that we can't even see. And that that's a whole movie right there. Yeah. And the music really, really helps sell that. Great moment to hone in on. And I'll jump right into my next pick. Halloween by John Carpenter, 1978. What else can be said about this opening theme? To me, it defines terror. 
I also, besides just that opening theme, Carpenter did that score himself, which is something that I love about John Carpenter. He is the jack of all trades. He does everything for his movies, and he's a very talented composer. Oh, yeah. He has solo albums of just composing, and he did this out of necessity because he had to. Yeah, they had no money to make that movie. And Halloween is my favorite horror movie of all time. I think it it is just, it's an art movie too. It really is. You can YouTube this. Someone, I don't know how they found this. Someone uploaded audio from a Halloween showing. I don't know if it's a showing in 1978. It might be like a year or two later, but it would have likely been the first time these people were seeing the movie. And you just hear the audio of, it's basically the last scene he kind of pounces up behind her and people are just losing their mind. I've never heard that reaction in a theater in in my life. And that's like, I love putting that stuff into context. I love hearing that stuff so much. Okay, so I saved my best for last in a way and it's a little out there, so hang with me. So, Nick, there's this French electronic band I love called M83. You may have heard me talk about them a few times today. Oh, no, I don't think you've ever <laughs> talked about them. I never, don't think I never. know who they are. <laughs> and okay. And look, I could go on for an hour about what this band means to me. That isn't the purpose of this episode. But to say they are my favorite band is an understatement. To say their music is the best literal sound my ears have heard is a little closer to what this band means to me. I first heard their music at a house party on July 2nd, 2010, and my life was forever changed. I'm not kidding about any of this. It's it's so specific to my heart. Um, I know this sounds big and dramatic and heady, but this is me, and their music is so cinematic. And though they did the score for Oblivion with Tom Cruise, the studio took that score away from M83 and turned it into a generic blockbuster score, which is really a damn shame. However... Around the same time, a young filmmaker named Jan Gonzalez decided to make his first feature called You in the Night. And the movie is, um, well, it's a movie about two ghosts who invite a group of people over for an orgy. And it's, it's funny. It's supposed to be funny. It's minimalist. It's absurd. I love it. Jan Gonzalez described it as the breakfast club meets the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. And the music to this movie was done by M83 which is fronted by Jan's brother, Anthony Gonzalez. So you have a director-composer partnership here that pays off in every respect. It sounds like Jan really gave Anthony the freedom to make an M83 album for the movie, and I love it. This is my favorite film score as music. I listen to this thing all the time since I got my hands on it in 2014. No bullshit, I don't know if a week has gone by where I haven't at least listened to one song. And I'll always remember this score so fondly because by dumb luck, I got invited to the You in the Night movie premiere in Santa Monica in 2014, and I got to meet Jan and Anthony Gonzalez, and I could barely keep it together for the five minutes I was allowed to talk to them. You know, one of the tattoos I have is lyrics from one of their songs that reminds me of my mom. Um, This really isn't just music to me. M83 is life. If you can't find the film, it's a little obscure. You can find You End the Night by M83, that album, pretty easily. Highest recommendation. And I love that you talked about that because I know how much M83 means to you. By that measure, they mean that much to me. So that's what music does. I think, you know, in the same way the movies do for us. Like, we learn 
what someone their tastes are we know what they listen to what they feel when they listen to it when they're what type of movies they like to watch says a lot about who we are as people and it says a lot about what it is that we are kind of after what we're kind of exploring throughout this time in life and music i think is directly linked to the heart in that way Mm -hmm. i wish i could say this for my favorite band i would like to have a song by your favorite band composed for an entire movie that's fucking awesome that's a treat yeah and real quick uh jan gonzalez's follow-up film knife and heart was a little more popular it got some bigger play it actually came out last year and m83 did the music for that i really like it knife and heart is a weirder film than you in the night i love them both but if you want some weird French cinema, give them a try. <laughs> and I'll, I'll round this out. This score, I just think, is fun as hell. This is The Man from Uncle by Daniel Pemberton, Guy Ritchie movie. This is probably, I'm a huge vinyl collector. I love vinyl. This is probably my most played score. I have a lot of different movie score albums. This is probably the number one on the list. Oh, cool. I can put this thing on and... You write to it. I can, you know, clean any, anything. Like when this thing's on, it's fun. It's got that Guy Ritchie, you know, snatch type feel, but it also has jazz elements. It has, it's very European. I just think this album is an absolute blast. And if I had one recommendation from this list that I would tell anyone to listen to, it would be this one. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Just, it's another good Spotify album. I mm-hmm. I actually had not seen Man From U.N.C.L.E. I watched it because you picked it, but before I put it on, I just put on the score and I'm like, let me see if any of this grabs me and then maybe I'll have a better connection to the movie. And it did. I mean, Escape from East Berlin is a really, really fun track. I hear some, some Ocean's Eleven influence, which yeah. are scores I love and were really close to making my list, but... It's just a lot of fun. Not all these have to be, you know, menacing or doom. It's just, it's a good one. And you could, I could envision you of all people putting on the man from Uncle Score and going about your day in your apartment. That's exactly Just having a hell of a time. A hell of a time. (laughs) So those were a few of our favorite full scores. But now we're going to narrow it down a little bit and go through some of our favorite pure cinema moments with score. Now, pure cinema is kind of like, love and that everyone has a different definition for it but to me pure cinema is a moment in a film it can be a scene it can be an act it can be 10 seconds whatever when every aspect of the movie that is being presented to us beautifully comes together for however long and music helps a lot with moments like this essentially i think a pure cinema moment is a movie scene that gives you chills if for no other reason than that scene is just so goddamn well made just to jump right in the clearest example and probably the most popular example of this that i can offer is the docking scene from interstellar where Hans zimmer's organs are blaring away drowning out the dialogue and man i mean when those ships matched and started spinning at the same time i'm getting chills right now just thinking about it i've talked about this before on this podcast but that moment i just started crying in the theater not because it was sad or inspiring it was just a perfect pure cinema moment. And again, that's probably the clearest pure cinema moment I can offer. Come on, Tars. Oh, you're so right. I it, and, and honestly, we, we've got a few examples here, but when I think about a score being utilized in a movie, I really don't know if it gets better than that. 
that that scene it, it's all the music and i am on the edge of my seat and it's such a great scene and a great piece of music that being said i'm going to start off with a banger <laughs> rocky 2 1979 bill conti hell yeah when adrian just whispers into rocky's ear just do this one thing for me and she's like win that bell goes off. What are we waiting and for? Nikki, what are we waiting for? Take us. And we cut to the famous montage. I mean, every Rocky movie has them. And it, it grows, too, like from the first one to, like, what, the seventh? It's such a great scene. It's very, very motivational. I'm, I'm a guy who works out. I, and so, I don't know. There is something <laughs> badass about just watching a dude just fucking pump out reps body fucking glistening in the sweat he's doing ridiculous <laughs> movements shoulder pressing creed creed i mean fuck yeah <laughs> of the rocky montages that's the best one rocky 2 is actually my favorite rocky it's my favorite end fight how they both fall at the same time um the gonna fly now running scene is my favorite i don't know if you ever noticed this i, I did not notice this until this viewing this morning but right as he's running around the fountain, there's a little kid running next to him with a fucking broken arm, like in a sling. <laughs> it's like slinked up and he's in the front of the line, like running right with Rocky. It's hilarious. And that was the first clip of yours that I put on. And I was like, fucking pumped now, man. I'm ready yeah. to start the day. Like, let's get it going. Yeah. That's what it's it great. does. It's amazing. It's pure cinema. Pure cinema. I had to include an Eno, Miraconi. Somewhere here. And my favorite Marconi cue is the reveal of Frank and Once Upon a Time in the West. After a group of hidden thugs gunned down an innocent family, the thugs slowly start emerging from the sagebrush and the camera carefully turns to reveal that their ruthless leader is played by one of cinema's most prominent good guys, Henry Fonda. And this is a really, really intentional movie moment fonda and sergio leone knew exactly what they were doing with this casting it's still working five years later it was a huge stunt and the music really really helped sell it it's not obviously the most famous Eno mariconi cue but it's one that i always think about when i think of him it's a great scene. It's one of the most uncomfortable scenes because you're really watching an entire family just get massacred. And that's a long movie, and this is early in the movie, so it sets a pretty ruthless tone right away. Rare for that time, considering who Henry Fonda was. All right, I'm going to switch gears, too. So this is 1917, the score by Thomas Newman, and the particular scene that... Uh, resonates with me is the, I think the big scene that resonates with most people is the final run at the end and that whole entire movie is to me um it's it's walking through hell seeing that main character by the time we get to that scene at the end everything he's been through it, he he has not come this far to fail and he's gonna die trying I really really needed to see something like that at that time and I'm getting a little emotional about it right now because I can still feel it because courage is something very, very important to me. It's something that uh, I value. It really floors me. Love that scene. Love that movie. The first time I saw it, it was so... That movie is really, really brutal. Yeah. And it does not get enough credit, frankly, for how 
It's like deer hunter brutal, like climbing through the soot and the shit and the water and over all those bodies. Oh, man. And that that movie needs that triumphant moment. Mm -hmm. It's been building up to that. That's the kind of the crescendo of the movie. Everything is at a softer pace after that. And it's it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Love it. I'm really glad you just said that one, because my next one hits me as I, I think equally emotionally and like the docking scene from Interstellar, pure cinema gets no more concrete than E.T. lifting those boys into the air to evade police capture. The triple jump cut to Elliot's terrified face, the extreme close-up of E.T. smiling, that little ooh that he gives out, and then they lift off. Bliss, tears, joy every time. Favorite John Williams. We're purposely sticking with one scene here, but... John Williams' E.T. is a great score, top to bottom, but that, God, that scene, every time. And I'll say this for it, man, that movie is pure magic. Yeah. So this is an interesting one, A League of Their Own, 1992, Hans Zimmer, which, by the way, A League of Their Own is a fantastic movie. So I saw this movie when it probably came out, like, not in theaters necessarily, but, like, on video, so I was young. I felt very, very emotional as a kid and as I do now when... At the end of the movie, after you've seen everything, all of the women who are still alive are having their Hall of Fame. And I don't know what it is about the full scope and magnitude of a life lived that really makes me emotional. It resonated with me as a kid, and I was a kid. I didn't have any capacity to think about, oh, the life I'm going to live and who's going to be a part of it and who's going to die and who's going to be there at the end. And so this movie speaks to me a lot in that way and purely because of the music. By the way, Gina Davis, that movie, that was my first crush. There you go. (laughs) Amen. Watch out. (laughs) For my next pick, in all seriousness, I did want to, I'm about to talk about something so serious. I did want to show that pure cinema moments aren't reserved for scripted material and that they can appear in documentaries as well. And a good example of this is the final scene from The Cove, which won the Best Documentary Oscar in 2009. This was an important film for me, and I think it's important for people to see. And here's what it lays out. So every year, more than 23,000 dolphins and porpoises are killed by the Japanese whaling industry. This is 2009 information, by the way. And a large majority of them are slaughtered in a tiny cove in Japan. Dolphin activist Rick O'Berry helps a film crew break into the cove and finally capture this dolphin slaughter, which Japanese officials are maintaining doesn't take place. Now, what's really cool about the scene I'm talking about is that it involves a person showing footage from the documentary we are watching to people in the documentary. The Last Dance, the new Michael Jordan documentary, did this a lot. The filmmakers hand Jordan an iPad and show him show him a clip from the documentary and then ask him to comment on it. It's a cool little meta documentary thing. Anyway, I don't want to reveal what happens in the cove, but it's a really empowering moment. And a lot of this is due to Jay Ralph's incredible string arrangement during this scene. Please go check out the cove. This is not a stuffy National Geographic documentary. This is a documentary thriller. And the music is really, really special in it. And it's some of the best documentary music I've ever heard. It is. I, I, uh, you, you recommended me this, and I watched it. And when you get to that scene, the the music, it took me. Like I got goosebumps. Yeah. And I felt the importance, the urgency, 
Uh, speaking of great examples of score, it's the end of The Last of the Mohicans from 1992 by Trevor Jones and Randy Edelman. The song's called Promontory. You're talking about a complete summation of the story of a movie done with little to no dialogue, mostly just sounds. It's all music. It takes you through everything. And if there is not one more badass moment than Daniel Day-Lewis picking up two of those rifles and just shooting these guys at the same time as he's running, that's movie magic right there. (laughs) And we, I mean, we just went through his entire filmography a few episodes ago. Yeah. And I watched that movie once, regular version, and then once with the Michael Mann commentary. And then this morning... I'm sitting here putting on that scene, and I just get completely absorbed in it again. And I'm like, yeah, Fuck yeah Daniel Day, go get him, go get him. I'm like, I just watched <laughs> this twice, like three weeks ago. And I mean, he knew how to do that. He learned how to fill those guns while running and I, just the intensity of his face. And But everyone's playing that, that sequence well. It's a great stretch. It's an impeccable Michael Mann sequence. My final pick for this category, again, I'm saving my favorite for last. And just like Inception for you, I think people might start to get a little tired of me talking about this, but that's okay. Pure cinema, specifically designed to my music taste, is no more prevalent than the montage and Steve McQueen's shame. Harry Escott's slow build score, the sudden non-linear editing, which echoes the montage that opens the film, the recklessness of Michael Fassbender's character, the pain of Carey Mulligan's voicemail, And look, I know sex can be a weird topic to talk about and to hear about, and this isn't an easy film for most people, but the way this sequence ends, I I haven't seen a more powerful movie moment since. And let me choose my words carefully here because I don't want to generalize, but I believe the intention of this portion of the montage, which if people haven't seen it, has Fassbender engaged in a fairly graphic threesome with two prostitutes is to show that in a non-addict's brain, what is happening right now should be an act of joy, pleasure. Fassbender's character is an addict, and a desperate one at that, and he is deriving zero pleasure from this. Heroin addicts need a hit of junk, but it doesn't mean that they want one. There's a huge difference there. That's something that separates a lot of people who need something because they're convinced that they have to have it, and who want something because they think it'll just be fun. And to me, I think this scene captures all of that with really honest emotional destruction. I do not think a single frame of shame is sexy or erotic. In fact, I think it's the best movie ever made about the brutalities of addiction. And Escott's music really helps capture that because during the final portion of that scene, his music is the only thing you hear. You don't hear any of the sounds within the movie. Really, really important scene to me and my filmmaking. It's my favorite scene that you picked, and I uh, re-w- rewatched it again, and it is, it's everything you just said, immensely powerful in that way. Yeah. And then uh, this, is, this last one for mine, this is my favorite, uh, it's from my favorite movie of all time, Blow, the, and this score was mostly just a guitar track with some, some tone added to it by Graham Revell, who is a great, great composer. To me, this scene is everything that music can do in a movie. Johnny Depp's character just comes out of the courthouse and he's just been convicted of selling weed, so he's going to go to jail for two years and he meets with the love of his life at the time. And she, you know, he tells her the the verdict 
and he's going to be serving for two years, and she doesn't have two years because she has cancer, and she's going to die. The camera starts to slowly circle around them in slow motion, and this guitar comes in, and when we're receiving this information the way Johnny Depp's character is, I don't know if it's me, but the way that I receive information sometimes is sort of like a slow wave shock, and that's what this scene does. This scene is this slow wave of a reveal to, and you see it all on his face. First, he doesn't understand. Then he does, and it's nothing but just one word, no. I don't, like, you, you see it in his face, and this beautiful guitar track plays over it. No scene, I don't think, captures my emotion more, and I will cry every time. Love everything about this movie but in terms of score that's how powerful it is to me and in this movie is the best example i can think of that is my favorite pick of yours because it's arguably the most simple example of a pure cinema moment that we're talking about but it really works because when characters in movies are receiving news like that we're used to usually the director will mess with the soundtrack and those things will get muffled we might even adopt their pov and things get out of focus and this you're just playing it all off depth's face and if you've ever received information like that it's it's a blow <laughs> it just yeah. nails you it knocks the wind out of you it's a really tender moment in a movie that is about to launch into chaos and her death kind of signifies that cuz she was this really calm serene sense of peace and now she's gone and he's kind of unhinged as a result great pick so we hope you enjoyed those scenes and those full scores we did mention this man briefly but we're going to switch gears to one single person for a little bit because there is one composer who's been really important to you as a person and as a film lover and that's james horner you mentioned him earlier when talking about the wrath of khan so we're going to break off for a little james horner corner here and Hear what you have to say about him. The Horner Corner. I fucking love that. Ah, That's yes. right, man. James Horner is my favorite composer of all time. You said something earlier that pretty much sums up how I feel about him. It's, it's what my ears want to hear. From Star Trek II, that was an early movie of mine that I saw when I was a kid. My ears had never heard anything like that. I was, I was just entranced by it. And then come to find out that all of these movies that I start to find that I love for whatever reason all have him as the composer. There is no way that that's a coincidence. And so Star Trek II was not his first movie, but it was his first big one. And he, uh, the studio didn't have enough money to pay Jerry Goldsmith because Jerry Goldsmith composed the first movie. So they landed on Horner. And subsequently... Aliens, which is one of my all-time favorite scores. I didn't mention it because I wanted to talk about Horner Corner. Right. <laughs> but Jerry Goldsmith was supposed to score that as well. So Horner basically got Jerry Goldsmith's scraps. An interesting story about Aliens. After James Horner worked with James Cameron on that movie, he vowed to never work with him again, citing how highly stressful the scoring sessions were. He said it was a nightmare. Fast forward <laughs> 10 years later, he wins the Oscar with him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. not the Oscar, two Oscars in yeah. one year for a James Cameron movie. That's awesome. And then not only that, but he did the score for Avatar. And he also, um, unfortunately, James Horner passed away in 2015. 
tragically in an airplane accident, but uh, he is also scoring Avatar 2. So it'll be interesting to see how the rest of that score plays out, and that will be, you know, his last um, contribution to film. But I did want to bring out some of the different movies, and I mean, you can go on your on the IMDb list and see all the movies he's done. It's astounding and baffling to see how many movies this man has done, but I just want to list a few of my particular favorites. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Field of Dreams, Glory, The Rocketeer, Everyone, after you're done listening to this podcast, if you do one thing in your life, go see The Rocketeer. All these goddamn movies, Marvel movies that come out, superhero movies, The Rocketeer does it better than any of them, and that score kicks ass. Rocketeer rocks. Rocketeer rocks. Sneakers. (laughs) Braveheart, Casper, Apollo 13, Jumanji, Titanic. I don't give a shit. Titanic is an amazing score from top to bottom, one of the biggest musical influences of my life. I don't care what people say about it. It's a beautiful piece of music. Mask of Zorro. Keep going, go. Perfect Storm, Enemy at the Gates, The Missing, Troy, it's yours, take it. Alex is one of Alex's personal favorites, The New World, The Amazing Spider-Man, one that I love because I love the story behind it, Southpaw, because he did that score for free because he loved the movie so much. The Horner Corner. Boom. <laughs> Jesus. That's the most animated you've ever been. Wait, what? Why didn't they? They didn't have Antoine Fuqua. Couldn't give him a couple bucks for Southpaw. They didn't have the budget. No, I'm sure he did. But he did, He wanted to do it for free because that's the kind of man James Horner was. James Horner. Great man. And we're not we're not. Please don't mistake. We're not being flippant like we love this guy. And it does. It is awful how that he is not here anymore because this guy has had a huge contribution to film. And I want to dedicate my portion of James Horner Corner to my favorite Horner score, which you mentioned, The New World. And now, of course, I can't just leave it at that because this is a Terrence Malick movie and therefore it has Terrence Malick stories. One such story relevant to this episode is that Horner delivered a beautiful, poetic, transcendent score to Malick. And Malick ultimately used very little of it. Horner is credited as the composer of the movie. Some of his musical cues can be heard, but Malik opted for a classical score, including relying really heavily on Wagner. This is a bittersweet pick because this is one of my favorite movie scores ever, and so little of it is used in the movie. But And of this whole ordeal, Horner said, this was the most disappointing experience I've ever had with a man, and I've never felt so let down by a filmmaker in my life. And that sucks because <sighs> this is one hell of a full James Horner album. Like we said, he did die tragically in a plane accident in 2015. He's missed. He was nominated for 10 Oscars and he won two, as we said, in the same year for best song and best score for Titanic. He's missed. I'm glad to hear that we will be able to hear him in Avatar 2. I did not know that. So that's that's nice. Yeah. I wanted to touch on something because the new world is the best example for this that I have. Just really quick. Movie scores don't just have to be movie scores. We can do other things with them aside, only listening to them while they're playing during a movie. You mentioned this about Man From U.N.C.L.E. For me, most everything I have written since college has been drafted with a movie score playing in the background. And that's screenplays, newspaper articles, magazine profiles, press releases, blogs, whatever. If I'm writing, there's usually a score playing. I can't write to songs with lyrics, so scores are perfect for me. And 
So just for fun, I thought it'd be cool to burn through some of the scores I play a lot when I'm writing. Um, a lot of these movies are new, and that's because this list is fluid. It's really hard for me to find a score that I like to write to, but when I do, it goes into the rotation and it doesn't really leave. I've mentioned a few already. The Thin Red Line by Hans Zimmer, You in the Night, of course, M83, The New World, Phantom Thread, far more so than There Will Be Blood. That's a tough one to write to. E.T., The Social Network, The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. Great one to write to. Has some lyrics, but... Great score. Yeah, yeah. Rust and Bone, my favorite Alexandra Desplat. Upstream Color, Shane Carruth, which is one of my favorite top-to-bottom scores. Ad Astra, a recent one, which I love. Rescue Dawn, great Werner Herzog movie. I love the score for it. If Beale Street Could Talk is a new one I love writing to. That's it. I'm not going to bore people with the full list, but yeah, I just... I love the fact that scores serve another purpose to me. If you go... If you look at my most 25 played top songs, more than half of them are film scores for this exact reason. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. I am I there's actually this is funny. I only write to one composer, and that's Max Richter. Oh, really? Everything about his music is what puts me in a particular place where my imagination can be at ease and be alive. Have you jumped into Ad Astra? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, To the Stars, that's a really good one. But you have some things you like to do with scores, other than just in movies. Speaking to my one of my pick from my, my favorite cinema moments, Rocky Two. like I said, I, I work out. I'm, I, I, I love fitness. I love <laughs> training. And sometimes a really good movie score is exactly what the doctor ordered. These songs are great to work out to. Bishop's Countdown from Aliens by James Horner, which is uh, also the fifth most used uh, song in trailers. How the hell do you know that? I fucking looked it up, baby. <laughs> Why don't you type that in? That's some... All right. Well, hey, that's cool. I, I'm going to listen to it now. Um, and also rounding out Horner for that one is the song Hard to Starboard and the Sinking from the Titanic. Duel of the Fates by John Williams. You know what I mean. Phantom Menace. Yeah, that's a great one. It's a great song. He's a pirate by Pirates and the Pirates of the Caribbean. Molasses by Hans Zimmer from Batman Begins. This should be on everyone's workout playlist. This song is badass and it gets you going. <laughs> what else we got? The Tanker Chase by Brad Fiedel from T2. Another one of my favorite movies. This and is then so I just... fucking specific. <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> This is I just so literally specific. you're like you're gonna be like the end suite part two from yeah, I don't yeah. even know what Jesus. exactly it keep going well th- this is, I, I this is the last one that I want to say out is Rock House Jail from the soundtrack of The Rock oh yeah one of my favorite action movies but that song it's like eleven minutes and it's just it's just pure full throttle. Adrenaline pump and action, baby. Oh, and imagine the fire from The Dark Knight Rises by Hans Zimmer. Yes, got to work out to that. If the uh, writers listening need some, some inspiration to write to, they have it. And if the meatheads want to juice out and listen to some of your tunes, they have it. I love to work out too. I'm not calling you a meathead. <laughs> okay, on to, on to Oscars. It's what are you watching? So we got to talk about the Oscars. We'll make this quick. I just wanted to highlight some fun best score Oscar facts and trivia. 
Alfred Newman has the most best score Oscars, winning nine times and nominated 41 times. Good God. John Williams has been nominated 47 times, though I'm sure that will change. I'm sure he'll be nominated more. Uh, his five wins, I forgot the first one, so I thought it'd be fun to throw him out. Fiddler on the Roof was his first. Jaws, Star Wars, E.T., and then Schindler's List, so he hasn't won since 93. Eight composers have won best score twice in a row. The most recent being Gustavo Santoaia for Brokeback Mountain and Babel. Those are two great wins. Oh, Brokeback Mountain's great score. Yeah. Most nominations without an award. This is going to hurt your feelings. So right now, it is tied at 14 between Alex North and Thomas Newman. This is what you're not going to like. North died in 1991, and Newman is still cranking out great scores. So I'm sad to say Newman is probably going to take this throne sooner rather than later. If I gave him one win, it would be for American Beauty in 99, which I think is a really important score for that film. But he's been nominated for Wally, Skyfall, 1917, as you mentioned, plenty of others. He's great. Poor guy. <laughs> and then finally, I have just four examples of some really cool, like, oh, I'm so glad they won that. Burt Baccarat won this award for Butch Cassidy in 1969. I love that. Awesome. Giorgio Moroder won for Midnight Express. So we put the click on the 24 track. Yes! <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, as we've talked about, Social Network. And Eno Marconi, thank God, finally won for The Hateful Eight. Uh, he recently passed away. Rest in peace. Any thoughts? Any Oscar thoughts from you? It seems like over the years that the Oscars have been around, it seems like every generation, there's about a handful of about, I would say, five composers who basically sum up their generation's work, which is an interesting thing and um, like, obviously, like we talked a little bit about Hans Zimmer is definitely one of the powerhouses of today. Thomas Newman, Alexander Desplat, you know, you, you go back and you look at like the 30s and 40s, it was the same people. And then you transition, you know, Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, these names, they dominate the market. And it, I think they are just the best in the world at what they do. Yeah, absolutely. So we hope we've given you some. We've given you a lot of recommendations here, stuff to write to, work yeah. out to, stuff to be inspired by. We hope you liked it. We're going to wrap up as we always do with what are you watching? Um, I'm going to go first. I wanted to branch out a little here, and I actually thought of you when choosing this pick, but I'm going to go with Elevator to the Gallows, a French film from 1958. Yes. Do you know this? Yes, I love this movie. All right, okay, good. I didn't even know if you had seen it, and I know why you love it, and I'll, I'll, I'm getting there. I'll get there. French film from 1958, directed by Louis Mal. Um, the movie's about two lovers who are planning to kill the woman's husband. It's a great little thriller, only 88 minutes long. But most interestingly, the film is scored by Miles Davis, who did originals, who did an yeah. original score for the movie. The score was completely improvised and recorded in the middle of the night in one single jam session. And it sounds like everyone was drunk. <laughs> and the result is a really groundbreaking use of an original score. And just for music and movies in general, European cinema was way ahead of American cinema in terms of taking structural chances like this. And this is a really cool example of that. Um, this is definitely a film geek recommendation. I'm so thrilled that you've seen it. I didn't know if you had seen it. So Elevator to the Gallows, it's on the Criterion channel. Check it out. It's got a great, really great score. <laughs> really great score. And one thing we didn't talk about too much, I think it could almost have its own episode, is 
what jazz means to movies. Uh That is a genre of music that has been a part of film for decades. And so much emotion comes behind jazz. I love jazz. We can talk about that later. (laughs) But for my recommendation, um, this is an interesting one. I love this movie. Uh, I do have a soft spot in my heart for romantic comedies. But the reason I'm recommending this one is because I think in its way, it is actually a love letter to film composers and film scores. And that is The Holiday. Oh. Uh, Nancy Myers. Cool. 2006. Okay. Yeah. And Jack Black's character plays a composer. And throughout the whole entire movie, he is just listing different movies and the score. And it's so sweet. And it really makes you appreciate score. It brings that art form to life no better way to end than that thanks everyone it's been a really fun episode to record we hope you've had fun listening uh thank you for listening and happy watching hey everyone thanks again for listening you can check out my flicks and my movie blog at alexwithrow.com nicholasdostal.com is where you find all of nick's film work Nicholas Ali does the music for our show. I've made a few music videos with Nick. He's a great guy and we love his tunes. Big thank you to him. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. Next time, we're switching from movie scores to movie songs and soundtracks. A ton of great tunes to dive into here. Stay tuned. <laughs>